Good morning, church. Go ahead and turn to John chapter 11. I'm going to start reading in verse 17 and read through verse 36. And what you'll see is that we're in a, a section of scripture that's really about lament. We see that lamentation, lament, sorrow, grieving is biblical, it's spiritual, uh, and, it, and it's even Christ-like. So keep your eyes open for that. We'll start in verse 17. I'll read the passage, pray, and then we'll study it together. So when Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? She said to him, Yes, Lord, I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who is to come into the world. And when she had said these things, she went away and secretly called Mary, her sister, saying, The teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she arose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house uh, and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? They said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. Let's pray. Jesus, I ask um, that in, in this word, as I, I attempt to teach it and, and preach it, um, I pray, God, that, that we would see how great your love is. That as, as we look to this, um, this sorrowful passage, this, um, this, this section in Scripture about lamentation, uh, I pray that we would not hesitate to lean into this and see that, Jesus, if this is something you experience, then, then it's okay for us to experience too. Um, and also, Lord, that we would just be aware that in our sorrow, whether we find ourselves more like Mary or Martha or even Lazarus, uh, you come to us in that moment and weep. Show us the truth in that. Show us what we need to see about you, Christ, so that we can worship you better, so that we can follow you more wholeheartedly, um, so we can know you, God. That's what we want. Teach us, in Jesus' name, amen. So, a little bit of background. Uh, Lazarus has died, and Jesus knew. Now, at the beginning of the chapter, he received a message that said Lazarus is sick, and he waited he knew that Lazarus was going to die. He waited and even tells the disciples who think that Lazarus is just sleeping. He's going to get better. He, he said very clearly in verse 14, Lazarus is dead. And we know uh, because we, we believe that Jesus is all powerful. We know that he could have stopped it. 
and Mary and Martha are convinced of this as well. They're convinced not only that he could have, but that he would have if he had been there. Um, verse 21, Martha says, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. And then Mary says the same thing in verse 32. He, he could have stopped it and he didn't. He could have caused his people, his, his best friends, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus are just Jesus' closest friends, it seems, outside the, the apostles. And he could have let them just avoid this trial, this tribulation entirely. He could have cut a shortcut through the woods around this. And, and he didn't. And he says in, in verse 15, I am glad for your sakes that I wasn't there. Uh, the, under, again, the assumption that if he had been there, he, he would have healed Lazarus. He says, I'm glad that I wasn't, so that you may believe. Now we, we see uh, in this passage, it, maybe it's especially difficult to stomach uh, but we see Jesus behave like this towards his people in, in a variety of, of places. You see that, you know, in, in um, walking on water, when Jesus in, in Matthew 8 and elsewhere, he, he walks on water and he does so and he meets them in the, in the middle of the lake. They had been rowing all night through the storm and they get halfway there. They're at, at the worst place because it, they can't go back, they can't go forward. It's this thing, they're just... They're just stuck, and that's when Jesus shows up. I mean, in verse 17, it says, When Jesus came, he found that he had already been in the tomb four days. Lazarus had been dead for four days. This is definitely halfway across the lake and all the way at the bottom. This is where Jesus is showing up. And, and we saw last week, and I tried to uh, teach last week, how this is consistent with love. In this passage, it mentions Jesus' love three times, and, and it mentions it emphatically. And we see that, how Jesus tests his disciples and how Jesus allows his friends to go through horrible, horrible things. This is consistent with the love of God. And it doesn't look like that all the time. It, this, this doesn't even look like the middle, right? This looks like the end. This is, this is what, it's too late. Jesus has come too late. In Matthew 25, Jesus talks about the coming of the Son of Man when he comes again. And in, in his parables and his metaphors he uses, he says he comes at midnight. Matthew 25, verse 6. He comes at midnight, at the, at the latest hour. When the day is done, that's when he shows up. And right now, we, that's where we see Jesus showing up. He comes at the end. And everyone sees that behavior in God and says... You, you waited too long, and now it's too late. And that's just not true. Jesus came when he intended to come. And he's doing this for the glory of God, and for the good of his people, and for the exaltation of his name, the only name under heaven, given among men by which we must be saved. So he comes, and when he comes to Bethany, or, or near there, he finds that Lazarus has already been in the grave for days. Now, there was a superstition at the time that the soul of the departed stayed close to the body for the first three days after death. But on the fourth, it went on to wherever it was going on to. And so on day four, there's really no hope. You know, there, there were Bible stories, which at this point in time, you know, some people took them as, as literal truth as we do, and others, I'm sure, took them as legend. But there, were, there was, you know, uh, precedent. Elijah and Elisha raising the dead. These things did happen. Um, but not like this. Not a four-day-old corpse. 
So Jesus shows up, and from all um, from everyone's perspective, what they would see is a hopeless situation and a God who waited too long and a Savior who made a mistake. Now Bethany, verse 18, Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. Um, and many of the Jews had joined the women around Martha and Mary to comfort them concerning their brother. Uh, mourning lasted for several days in that culture. It was a, it was a multi-day grieving period. So even though he's been in the tomb for four days, um, he's, you know, the, the, the mourning is still going on and there's many of the Jews in the area who are grieving with Mary and Martha and this would, this would be common practice then. Um, but something you have to remember, you know, it says the Jews and you think, well, of, of course they're Jews. I mean, there's not really any Gentile Gentiles in this story, not as main characters, and they're in Israel. They're right outside Jerusalem. Of course they're Jews. Um, but what John has done in the last few chapter chapters is he has shown the Jews, just as a generalization, call it racist if you want, but it's what John's writing, not what I'm saying. He, the Jews so far have been the bad guys. When he lumps them into a group like that, they're the bad guys. You can look back at verse uh, 8. And the disciples say, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you, and are you going there again? Now, they're, they're not talking about every citizen of Israel, but there is a group of Jews, religious Jews, in Jerusalem that have it out for Jesus. And now in the same chapter we see that it is the Jews that are with Mary and Martha grieving for Lazarus. So this could be a risky place for Jesus to be. In verse 20 it says, Now Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. But Mary was sitting in the house. Now remember last week, I mentioned that Mary and Martha are very different people. Uh, every time we see them in Scripture, they're behaving according to their own nature, but they're very different natures. Um, and there's a contrast here between the sisters. Martha, what we see in Martha is, is uh, proactivity. She's a doer. She's proactive. And Mary is slower to move. Okay, she sits still, and sometimes that's a good thing when she's sitting still at the feet of Jesus. And Martha's the person that gets up, sees the problem and the solution, and starts working to get the one to solve the other. That's who Martha is. And right now she hears that Jesus is coming, and she does not delay because that's the solution. She knows what work needs to be done, so she goes to Jesus immediately. And I like this. Now, it's interesting because usually the Mary and Martha contrast is, well, would you rather pray and read the Bible or wash dishes? Though That's your only choice right here. And that's the Mary and Martha dichotomy. But what we see in Martha here is more eagerness to go to Christ. She is intent on getting things done. And as believers, we have to believe that the thing that needs to be done is prayer. The thing that needs to be done is going to Christ for every problem, for every solution, we go to Christ. So Martha, just like she would walk into a kitchen and say, I'm not leaving until this place is clean, I'm gonna wash it up and then I'm gonna start breakfast tomorrow, you know, in the slow cooker and everything. And she would just get stuff done in the same way, right now she hears Jesus is coming and she does not delay. And she gets up and she goes to where Jesus is. And I think that we should have this Martha-like spirit. This Martha sense of urgency. Because what's going on right now in your life? I don't know. Lots of things. 
We all, we all have stuff going on. But what's going on right now and, and how are you responding to it? Because the way we ought to respond to our, even our grief and our trials, the tribulations or whatever, is immediately, as quick as we can, get up, stop what you're doing and go to the Lord for help. You go to him for help in time of need. And that's what we see Martha does. That's what we see Martha do. Now, both sisters love the Lord. And Jesus loves both, the, both sisters and their brother. Both sisters love, both go to Jesus, each in their own time and in their own way. Both are grieving, but Martha's first. She's the first one to go to Jesus. And she's still a, a Martha, if you want to characterize people like that, which isn't a very good way to study the Bible, honestly. But Martha is still a worker. Uh, but now, maybe from growth, maybe from grief, um, her momentum now is Christward. Her work is to do the will of the Father, just like Christ is. Her work is to be about Jesus' Father's business. Her work is to pursue Christ, and so is yours. And Mary stays for a while, but she'll come around too, and we'll talk about her once we get there. Martha comes to Jesus, and she does so first. And in verse 21, it says, Now Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. Verse 22, But even now I know that whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Um, she has this assumption, and there's truth in it, uh, but it's not entirely true. Uh, there is kind of a false assumption here in verse 22. She says, and Mary will say it later, she says, If you had been here, he would not have died. You would have healed him. You would have stopped this. Now, that's probably true. If Jesus had been there and he was sick and they would have prayed and then Jesus would have healed him and it would have been fine. But the false assumption, you see that the, uh, the assumption here is that Jesus is too late. It's, you know, he could have stopped it, but he didn't. The idea is like, well, you could have healed, but you were just too late and now you can't. Now, we know that Jesus can heal from a distance. We have those Bible stories, right? Where the, the man will come and say, you know, come to my house and heal my servant. And the, at, through the course of the conversation, Jesus essentially says, I'll just do it from here. It's fine. Um, and so we know Jesus could have healed Lazarus from across the Jordan where he was when he got the bad news, but he didn't. So Martha is saying, if you were here, you, you could have, you know, you, you, prob you, you could have and you would have. And because you didn't, that must be because... It's probably because you're late. And, and as a general rule, the what-ifs and the if-onlys don't work with God. That's not, not a conversation that we can really have. And saying, well, if you had been here, then he wouldn't have died. Well, you know what? Jesus, while fully man, was also is also fully God, omnipresent. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? Nowhere. And so... By saying, if you had been here, he would not have died, you see there, there's still some weakness in the theology that's going to get ironed out. But there's faith as well. She says, but even now, I know that whatever you ask, God will give you. That's faith. That's faith. And I, I think, you know, um, Martha has grown. Martha is a, is a good role model for us here. And she says, even now, if you ask, God will give you what you ask. Even now. Um, and you know, she had assumed this is not, this must not be uh, your will. 
you know, be that, uh, or excuse me, I, I misspoke there. She's assuming that, that you, you couldn't have healed him and that you didn't want him to be, to die. That, that, you know, you would have wished he stayed alive too, but you, you just couldn't. But we look back at verse 15 and Jesus has said, I'm glad that I wasn't there. I'm glad it panned out like this. And, you know, verse 22 is, is true. Jesus could still ask now and his father would give him whatever he asked for. And you know what he didn't ask the father for? Healing for Lazarus. Jesus did not ask for Lazarus to be healed, but he's about to raise him from the dead. And there's faith in Martha and there's unbelief in Martha. You know, there's, there's both of them. There's, there's faith and unbelief mixed and we'll see that more in the confession that she get, uh, gives later. But this is an even now prayer. You know, it's halfway across the lake at the bottom. It's after four days. It's past hopelessness. It's midnight. It's 11.59 and 59 seconds. And Martha says, even now, Jesus, even now you can do whatever you want. Even now you could ask the Father and you could, you could give this thing. Even now. And so, that's faith. That is faith, and, and we'll see her grow in this faith. And Jesus is going to draw her out now. And because she's saying, you can do it now, which is a big, um, a big declaration of faith. But Jesus said to her in verse 23, your brother will rise again. He's talking about resurrection, not just hinting at it. He is saying it's going to happen. Your brother will rise again. That is an emphatic promise. There is resurrection coming. There's death now, resurrection later. Weeping now, joy later. He will rise again. And that um, emphatic promise from Jesus is immediately softened. It's immediately kind of discarded, really, in verse 24. Martha said to him, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Do you see what just happened there? There's an emphatic promise and then it's kind of softened and all the sharp edges are doled down and say, well, yeah, it's basically, it means something like this. Martha, what she does, and you can understand this because she's been at a funeral for several days. Martha mistakes Jesus's words for well-meaning nothings. And I say this makes sense because she's been at a funeral because uh, this is where you hear things like this at funerals. <laughs> And, and there's well-meaning nothings. The people say, well, you know, Lazarus is just, he's in a better place right now. And he's no longer suffering. And, okay, they're true, but they're also just kind of cliches, and they don't help a whole bunch. Uh, or what, you know, there's worse things that could be said, too, obviously. Um, people try and comfort, and sometimes you hear the comforting words that they try to offer and just cringe, you know? I mean, they're almost like Job's friends status comforters, you know? Well, this is probably because you didn't have enough faith. Um, and people say things like that, but even the most well-meaning and the kind and the generous, and they say, well, it's, you know, this is why we look forward to, to heaven. This is, they're, they're happy now and they're in a better place, but, but you know that death is still an enemy. And Isaiah chapter 25 says there is coming a day when death will be swallowed up, okay? But it's not yet. It's not yet. And death still stings. We say death, where is your sting? It's, it's empty and it, it's, it's been defeated because of the hope of the resurrection, but funerals are still sad. That's just the reality of it. 
And so Jesus says, you know, uh, your brother will rise again. And she says, sure, 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 sure. He'll, he'll rise again in the last day. I get it. Oh, I forgot to turn off the phone. It'd be really funny right now if I answered and said that they're on camera, but I'm not going to. We're just going to unplug that. Usually I remember to do that before I preach. Um, maybe that was the alarm to say to go on to the next verse. Uh, let's see. She assumes that Jesus' comfort is just well-meaning nothings. Like, it'll get better later. That's not what Jesus is saying. And I don't want to use Jesus' words like that. And I don't think you should use Jesus' words like that. The words of Jesus create. The words of Jesus have created the universe. When Jesus says, your brother will rise again, he's not saying that in a wishful thinking, kind of milk toast, soft uh, way. He's, he's saying, I have big promises, big promises, and I mean to fulfill them. So in verse 25, Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? What Martha hoped for in the future, Jesus is for her now. He says, your brother will rise again. And she says, oh, sure, sure, sure. There's heaven and stuff. And he'll rise again someday in the future, I guess, if you believe that kind of thing. And then she says, no, 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 Martha, I am the resurrection and the life. It's me. What Martha hoped for in the future, Jesus was now. What you are hoping for later, what you think is going to be so great later, is fulfilled for you in Christ now. This is how we can believe Ephesians 1, which says every spiritual blessing in heavenly places is yours in Christ. We've already been given, to, given all the things because we have Christ. And, you know, we, we look forward to resurrection, of course. But if you look forward to resurrection, just look to Jesus because he is the resurrection. And you can get, you can get to know Jesus now. You don't have to wait till you die. You know, we hope for eternal life, but as I've said before, eternal life is a quality of life. It's not something that starts after your funeral. You know, we want eternal life, but John 17, 3 says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's eternal life. So, you know, Martha could say, Oh yeah, I know there's eternal life later. Jesus says, No, it's about knowing me right now. That's what you're hoping for. Well, of course there's resurrection, and I guess there's heaven. And Jesus says, No, it's me. I am the resurrection. I am the life. Knowing Jesus now and for all eternity, that's everything. But it starts now. Knowing Jesus now, that's what's important. In verse 26, Jesus says, um, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you believe this? And, and, you know, Jesus has spoken like this before in the Gospel of John in chapter 8, verse 51. He said, if anyone keeps my word, he'll never see death. And Jesus knows best. He knows best and he, he knows when to act. And he knows how to act and he knows what to ask for. Now, is it, is it better to, to treat sickness or to conquer death completely. Well, Jesus says it's better this way. 
And you know, is it, is it better to avoid all risk and play it safe, or is it better to conquer evil? Christ conquered evil. And he asks Martha, do you believe this? He says, it's not enough, Martha, for you to believe in a, in a someday heaven. It's not enough for you to believe that God will just sort it all out in the end, and so whatever. He says, that's not enough. Do you believe in me, Martha? Do you believe that Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, is the resurrection, the fulfillment of all of your hopes? Do you believe that Jesus is the life, that the quality of life that you look forward to in heaven is an intimacy with Christ now that just continues on into heaven? Do you believe this? And I think that question is asked to each one of us. Is this what you believe? She said to him, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now, this is her confession of faith. Review a little bit. Last week, at the beginning, we saw that Jesus knew that Lazarus had died, even though the message that he received was only that he was sick. And Jesus knew that he had work to do. He knew it wasn't his time to die yet. He knew that Lazarus's death would result in greater glory to God. He knew all those things. And Christ, of course, he had the Spirit without measure. The Holy Spirit of God is in him completely. Um, and, and we see a Spirit-filled life in Christ. That's what, kind of what I talked about last week a little bit, where he's going towards the danger. He's going where the risk is. Um, and he encourages others, like Thomas, to do the same with his courage. The, the spirit-filled person goes into the place where everyone else says, like the disciples say, is that safe? Is that really a good idea? And we saw, we saw the spirit leading him. Well, now we see the Holy Spirit on Martha. And the Holy Spirit's always a background character, okay? He's not one that wants the spotlight. He doesn't show up and, and uh, draw attention to himself. He points the spotlight to Christ every time. But we see the Holy Spirit on Martha. And Martha, remember, is probably at her lowest moment. She's watched her brother die. She had hoped in Christ. And Christ didn't come through the way she expected him to. She's at a low moment. And Jesus now, instead of saying, they're there, they're there. He's asking her about her doc doctrinal stance on resurrection and eternal life. He's having a theological discussion with this woman at her brother's funeral. And, and he says, do you believe this? Do you believe that I am the resurrection and the life and that those are in me will never die? Do you believe this? Now, that's a hard thing to ask someone to believe because she had just seen death and she knew that her brother Lazarus loved the Lord. And he says, no, the ones in me never die. You saw death. But I'm telling you, they never die. What are you going to believe? What you see, experience, and know to be true with your physical senses, or what I'm telling you. That is quite a line in the sand that Jesus is drawing in front of Martha. And Martha says, Yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who has come into the world. Now, uh, yes, Lord, that shows humble submission. She's saying, have it, have it your way. Yes, whatever you say is true. Whatever you say is true. And, and she says, I believe, that means to cling to, belief is allegiance, and I will follow you to the end. Um, she says, uh, I believe that you are the Christ, that means the Savior, not this, and uh, the Son of God, more than just a man, but actually the Son of God. And I say that we see the Holy Spirit on Martha because when Peter, 
when the Apostle Peter says, You are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus says, Simon, flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but the Spirit of God. So right now, in her lowest moment, the Holy Spirit is close to Martha, is near to Martha, revealing to her, showing her what she needs to know about Christ, that yes, he's the Lord, and the year place is in humble submission to him. The Holy Spirit is working out faith in her. She says, I believe. And it's imperfect still. You know, and you think of, you know, my, my favorite prayer in the Bible, I believe, help my unbelief. That's where she's at right now. It's imperfect, but she believes. She believes that he's the Christ, the Son of God, and that is not revealed by flesh and blood. She didn't come to that conclusion by herself. God is meeting Martha in her grief. You know, by saying, I believe that you're the Son of God. She's, she's saying that this, this is the creator of the universe. We, we've looked at this before in Proverbs chapter 30. You know, who has ascended into heaven or descended? We saw this in, um, when we studied John chapter 3 and John chapter 1. Who has ascended into heaven and descended? Who's gathered the wind in his fists? Who established all the ends of the earth? What is his name and what is his son's name? And the idea is, that's God. That's God. And, and Martha is saying, you're that God's son. Martha's confession. You are the one who, with your father, established the ends of the earth. And she says, who is to come into the world. That, that's the idea that, that you're the one who's hoped for. You are the Messiah. You're the one I've waited for. You're the one that I've longed for. Now, we mentioned this last week. We'll mention it again this week. Might mention it next week as well. But her sister Mary, when Mary anointed the feet of Jesus, I mentioned that in breaking the alabaster flask on the feet of Jesus, she was placing all of her hopes for the rest of her life in the person of Jesus, who she knew was going to die. My Martha here is saying, you're the one who's come into the world, the Christ who is to come into the world. She's saying, you are the one that I've been hoping for. You are the one that the world is hoping for. Like the Christmas song goes, the weary world rejoices. This is Martha's confession, and it's a good confession. Verse 28, and when she had said these things, she went her way. She's commissioned, almost. It's like she has this com uh, contact with Jesus, this conversation with Jesus, and then she goes back to the other people who are still mourning, and she finds Mary. She went her way and secretly called Mary her sister, saying, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, she rose quickly and came to him. Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha met him. Then the Jews who were with her in the house and comforting her, when they saw that Mary rose up quickly and went out, followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Now, um, this, is, this, is a, this is when Mary gets in on, on the action here. And it's possible that she didn't hear that Jesus was coming and Martha didn't tell her until now. So the fact that she waited and didn't go to see Jesus, you know, don't judge her too harshly on that. But Mary goes to her and says, The teacher has come and is calling for you. So Jesus called um, Mary. 
He called Mary and he waited, away from the crowd, away from the town, uh, away from the tomb. But he called for Mary by name. He wanted a private conversation with Mary, just like he had just been able to have with Martha. You know, you remember in, in chapter 10, verse 3, you know, my sheep know my voice. And you see that he calls his sheep by name. And so he calls Mary to him, but he waits. He waits outside of town. And he waits and he sends a message. He says, come, come and talk to me. Come here, I want to talk to you. And he's still waiting. He's not at the funeral. Why? Well, one, I think for the glory of God, he knew his timing. <laughs> he had a, a real good sense of timing. And he knew exactly where he needed to be and when. Um, he... He's not at the funeral because he's building faith still. Just like he told the disciples, I'm glad that I wasn't there that you may believe. So he's still not there in order to develop their faith in his own way. But I think that the real reason that he's waited outside and that he sent Martha to go call Mary to him is because he wanted this intimacy with her. Um, he couldn't have had this conversation in a crowd. And he calls her out of where she is and says, come be alone with me. Now, could it be that God wants to come to you, um, but he, he waits to answer your prayer because he's calling you by name and desiring closeness with you? I mean, couldn't Jesus have just skipped these conversations, cut straight to the chase, and just raised the dead already? Of course he could but he doesn't. He waits and he talks with each one. And they could be saying in the back of their mind, or they could have said it out loud even, and just like, would you do the thing I asked for already? I'm dying here. Will you just solve the problem? And Jesus says like, okay, I want to talk to you. I want you to be near to me. So Jesus waits outside the town. And when Mary gets up and she says, as soon as she heard that he had called her, she arose quickly and came to him. So there's that same eagerness, you know. And she goes to Jesus and she, she runs to Jesus, I would imagine, though it doesn't say it. But quickly. She rose up quickly and went out. Um, and the Jews that are with her, they follow because she, they think that she's going to, to grieve at the tomb. But she's not. She's not going to where death is. She's going to where life is, the resurrection and the life. And according to everyone watching, her intimacy with Christ, her pursuit of Christ, looks like mourning. And you already know this prob probably, uh, but I'm going to let you know anyway. Sometimes it will. Sometimes your worship will look like mourning. And people will mistake what your prayers are and what your, your, your worship is uh, only for grief. Um, to others it looked like mourning, and sometimes our worship will, but Mary was going not to weep at a tomb. She was going to Christ, her comforter. Verse 32 says, Then when Mary came where Jesus was and saw him, she fell down at his feet, saying to him, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. It's the same as Martha. They probably uh, said this to each other. Several times, if Jesus had only been here, if Jesus had only been here, uh, where if they had known, you know, if they had known the extent of Christ's reach, they could have been confident, Jesus is here. But they, she says the same thing as Martha, uh, except the posture is different. 
And this is, this is why Mary is such an example to us. Martha is too. We've talked about that. But Mary here, she is always at the feet of Jesus. Always at the feet of Jesus. The first time we meet her in scripture, she's listening. She's just learning everything that Jesus has to say. She's listening to his voice, learning his word. We see her with the alabaster flask, you know, her, her one year's wages worth of perfume, broken, anointing him for burial. And it's just that extravagant, extreme worship, that expensive worship that she offers. And she just worships Christ at his feet. And then here we see that she is grieving at his feet. You know, and, and all the, the, the human emotions and the human experience, you know, Christ will take it all. He'll take your confusion, he'll take your irritation, he'll take your worship and your praise and your sorrow and your mourning and grief. The, the thing is, those human experiences are meant to be experienced in his presence at his feet. And Mary does this well. Mary is always at the feet of Jesus. In good times and bad times, Mary goes to Jesus and she humbly worships before him. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping, and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, Where have you laid him? And they said, Lord, come and see. So Jesus sees Mary weeping, and it's a pretty extreme word there for weeping. Um, it's, it's loud. It's big, ugly crying, right? And the people with her are, are crying too. And Jesus is moved by Mary's tears. In Psalm 56, verse 8, you know, we, we read that he keep, keeps our tears in a bottle. In Exodus 3, verse 7, it says, the Lord says, I know their suffering. He experiences it. He's moved with you in your suffering. He has moved... Um, in the extreme, it says he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. Now, it's not the same as Mary's ugly crying there, um, but he, he's troubled. And and even though he's not mourning as those without hope, you know, Paul talks about that in 1 Thessalonians 4, 13. It says, you know, there, there's a, a hopeless kind of mourning. And that's one thing. And we as believers, we don't have to participate in that hopeless kind of mourning. But you know what? We still mourn. We still lament. Lamentation is biblical. And Jesus, it says he groans in the spirit. And I don't want to, uh, this is kind of funny. The, the, the literal Greek here is weird. It would not translate well into English. R literally, it means he snorted like a horse. And, and that's kind of strange. But the idea is that there's physical noise here. There's, there's, it's ugly crying. He's choked up. He's troubled. Literally, he's tr he, he troubled himself, actually. The, the gr grammar um, means that he allowed himself to be troubled. He allowed himself to suffer in this way. Whoa, man. Someone is really trying to get a hold of me right now during this sermon, but you're more important than that. Jesus suffered in this way. He had laid his life down to this level of suffering in order to take it back up again. Christ lays down his life and he takes it up again. But Christ has voluntarily chosen the life of suffering with you. Christ chose to suffer with you. 
And I know a lot of times, you know, we, especially nowadays, it seems we, we see our emotions as involuntary reactions only, right? We just, we feel a certain way. And of course, yeah, you hit your thumb with a hammer and there's pain immediately and you didn't choose the pain. It just happened. But there's also, you know, we're more complex than that. Um, you know, we, we, we are more, um, discerning than, than that. You know, you, you cry when something's sad, but also you do have a, a choice for how much you invest your heart into something. Usually, you know, we know this because we do the opposite of what Jesus did. We, we hold back the tears and we hold back the emotional response and the, the emotions. We, um, we choke back the tears. We, we make sure that we're not going to cry. Jesus didn't do that. You know, I've, I've talked with um, one of you <laughs> about about this, and and you said that you know you just decided not to cry because it's not worth the headache. <laughs> and and some days it's just like I can't do that. I just can't invest the emotional uh, energy, the emotional capital to what this experience deserves really and calls for us. You know what? I'm just not going to. I'm not going to, I'm not going to engage. Jesus engages. And in choosing to suffer with you, he's, he essentially said, you're worth the headache. I'm going to ugly cry with you. And it's worth the runny nose and the, the dry throat. And it's worth the headache afterwards. You're worth the headache. And Jesus comes to where Martha is, and where Mary is, and where this crowd is, where Lazarus is, and he engages in their, their sorrowful experience, their horrible experience. In Hebrews it says he is acquainted with grief. A man of sorrows acquainted with grief, right? And in, in verse 35 we have this famous verse, Jesus wept. He was truly human and truly divine. And he wasn't ashamed of any part of his humanity. He wasn't ashamed of sadness. Um, and he knew that, that crying isn't wrong, that grief isn't evil. Spurgeon says he suffered all the innocent infirmities of our nature. And we see that he wept because he loved. The Jew said, see how he loved him. The, the scripture is full of, you know, men of God who weep over things worth weeping for. You have uh, Abraham and Jacob and David and Jonathan, Hezekiah and Josiah and Jeremiah and you, and all these people who, who weep in the presence of God, just like Mary, at the feet of Jesus, experiencing the sorrows of humanity, but not as those without hope, you experience those things in the presence of Christ who suffers with you and then is able to do something about it. Now, we're going to do the something about it next week. Resurrection will have to wait. But you have to see right now that Jesus knew the resurrection was coming. He knew about resurrection and you know what? He still wept. He still grieved with those who were grieving and he mourned with those who mourned as we should. You know, we believe in heaven and we still cry at funerals. And Jesus knew resurrection was coming, but he still entered into this whole entire human experience and he wept. And this verse, verse 35, is known as the shortest verse in the Bible. But I, I need to point this out as we uh, you know, prepare for next week where the good stuff happens. This is the shortest verse, but only in English. 
Uh, in English, this is the shortest verse. In Greek, in the language of the New Testament, the shortest verse in the Bible is 1 Thessalonians 5.16. Rejoice always. That's the actual shortest verse in the Bible. Uh, so if there's competition, then joy is going to win every time. <laughs> there is weeping here, and it's not wrong. But there's And there's rejoicing later that will conquer all the tears that we see here. Paul says, you know, there's glory coming. And he says that the, um, the temporary afflictions now don't deserve to be compared with the glory that will be in us. Psalm 30 verse 5, which I think I'll just close with. Psalm 30 verse 5 says, Weeping may endure for a night, but joy comes in the morning. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Thank you for entering into our entire human experience. Thank you for reaching out, uh, and not just reaching out to touch us in our grief, but reaching out to hold us in our grief and to, to, to cry with us and to number our tears in a bottle. Jesus, we believe, as Martha believed, we believe that you are the resurrection and the life. We believe that even now, whatever our even now is, as a church for each individual, but even now, God, even now, Jesus, you can ask your Father and he'll give what you ask him. We believe in resurrection. We believe that you know what's best, that you have a, a divinely perfect sense of timing. We believe, God, that you are caring for us and that you're working all things together for good. We believe these things, but God, our faith is imperfect, so we pray, help our unbelief. We love you. Help us love you more. In Jesus' name, amen.